Okay, while I'm getting my act together here. It occurred to me that um, most of you are probably not aware, when I come up here to talk, you know, you're getting me like trying to power through this like 85% of the time. And um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I imagine that the Apostle Paul, probably 95% of the time, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. You get that from me like a couple tenths of a percent, all right? Um, last week was a, an exception to that. I, I don't know what happened there, but it wasn't me. <laughs> that will probably not happen today. <laughs> um, so praise, obviously, for the Gully family and, and their new addition, which is super cool. And um, we should continue to lift up Ann Valinga. Uh, she got moved down to Mission Hills in, in the rehab center down there. And I'm reasonably sure she's not super pleased about being so far away from everyone, but I'm not sure any of us would be allowed in to, to go visit her anyway, uh, just with, with the way things are going. And um, just to confirm that, you have the, the things that are going on in Washington, D.C. We need to hold the leaders of our country up, um, continue to pray for them. I was quite surprised and pleased to find a ballot in my mailbox. If, if you haven't gotten yours yet, you probably will here in the next few days. So we have all these propositions and measures that I'm having to read through right now. And I'm not very good at all that. I don't understand a lot of it or what it means. I'm not sure a lot of people do. It's just these, these laws pass and then people try and figure out how to implement that. And it, it will be very interesting living here in California here next year as people try and our legislature tries to figure out how to do all this. It's always challenging. So continue to hold your, your government up in prayer as well. Let's open with a word of prayer before we uh, launch into Isaiah chapter 2. Almighty Lord, our God and Savior, we thank you for this day, Heavenly Father. We thank you for all the gifts that you bestow on us. We ask for wisdom in our decisions as we wrestle with these difficulties in our lives, these challenges. May you always be our focus to get us through these, these challenges in our life. Give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, we ask that you would give us your truth, which sets us free, that we would know your truth. And as we look to your scripture here from the prophet Isaiah, today set our hearts free, free from the slavery of idols and misunderstanding, free to the bondage of our own false thinking, Give us the freedom to believe your truth. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is the object of our saving faith, 
and to believe the words spoken here of and by him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God and written down by your servant, the prophet Isaiah. Help us, Lord, to be both hearers and believers of your truth, to live it out in our daily lives, to not believe untruth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I understand some of our young people got new study Bibles. I hope they're, they're reading those and lots of ink. Mark them up. They're, they're meant to be, have notes in the margins. And I know that's, that's a difficult thing. I, I went for years where I couldn't write anything in a Bible. I mean, you just didn't do that. And, and now I find that my Bibles are quite heavily marked up. Um, just these two pages right here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And this is just a random page out of Isaiah, right? Random. Isaiah. Not random at all. So, interesting thing here with this passage. We have Isaiah prophesying of a future day when God raises up the honor and the glory of his dwelling place. And so the first part of the passage concerns itself with what is referred to as the mountain of the Lord. And this is really the dwelling place of God. This is what, the way you should read that. And is, is, some people literally take this as the temple mount will be lifted up higher than the highest mountain on earth. I, I don't believe that that's the way it's intended to be read. It's intended to be read that because it, it concerns the honor that is brought to the mountain of the Lord. In an odd sort of way, the mountain of the Lord is actually talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about the new kingdom. It's talking about the new church on that day. It's talking about us, quite literally. There will be peace and prosperity over all the land. The second part of this passage goes back to what existed before, the, a similar sort of a, a message about the wickedness of, of the unfaithful city, of Jerusalem, and the real Jerusalem, and the real Judea, Judah, and the people of the house of David, and the house of Jacob. The, these are supposed to be the people who carried the message of the church and failed to do so. So let's go ahead and start. The mountain of the Lord. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now here we again have a pronouncement of who is bringing this message. It seems as though that perhaps some passage of time had happened since the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the second. We don't know. But the, the very first verse of chapter 2 is very similar to the first verse of chapter 1. It doesn't list the, the, the names of the kings, but once again you have Isaiah the son of Amos. 
in what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what we have. And then Isaiah launches into his discussion about the mountain of the Lord. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. The use of the expression here, latter days, is sort of open-ended. It may mean the present time for Isaiah under the kings of Judah, or it could mean other events in the history of the church and God's people. Included in this could be the return from exile in Babylon, or in the days of Jesus' mission, the day of Pentecost, or some future day when Christ returns again. I'm inclined towards the last of that. And on that day, the whole earth shall know the power, the splendor, the glory, and the justice of our God. On that day, the earth shall come to the temple of God as it is lifted in honor and glory and splendor. This is not the temple, the temple of David or the temple of Solomon or the temple of Herod or a new temple that will be built in that place. Quite literally, it is the church of God. The early physical representation of the temple is no longer now. It, the mountain of the Lord is a metaphor for the church and all its people in God's heavenly kingdom. The mountain of the Lord represents the kingdom of God and it's being exalted above all creation. And that's why all the nations flow to it. All the peoples of the, the nations shall be represented. And Mount Zion and the temple are symbolic of heaven and the kingdom of heaven under the rule of God. The earthly physical representation of the temple is no longer. In Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 8.13, we have the following. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The letter to the Hebrews explains that the need for the sacrifice to atone for sins has passed away. The temple was needed for the sacrifice. That is the reason it existed. The only one who was allowed to make the sacrifice was the chief priest. There is no chief priest today for the same reason. There is no sacrifice. There is no temple in which to have the sacrifice. So it does not work that way. There are no bulls or goats or sheep. And the sacrifice that is needed was never sufficient when it was animals being sacrificed. They were symbolic of something greater. We all know what that was. Jesus himself walked up onto the Temple Mount to be judged, to be found guilty in a lie. And you'll notice that it's both within the Roman court system and the Jewish court system 
that Jesus is found guilty and condemned to die. Falsely, because Christ lived that perfect life that we could never live. And yet afterwards, he is sacrificed and dies the death that we were supposed to have died. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is our mediator before God. There is no longer a need for an earthly priest to have a sacrifice to do this in our place. Jesus is our mediator, and we are the firstborn of God, those who are of his church, all of us who await Jesus coming again. Isaiah 2, verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Many people of the earth will have regenerate hearts in that day, and we will all gather, encouraging one another, the whole of God's people will gather before the Lord, and we will all walk in his paths. In verse 4, He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. All the redeemed kingdoms shall have peace between them. There is a counter to this that actually exists in Joel. In Joel 3.10, listen to what it says, Joel 3.10, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. I am the wheat, let the weak say, I am a warrior. In the time of Joel, it was still necessary to wage war. Joel lived about 200 or 300 years before Isaiah, during a time of great battles. Isaiah and Micah both reflect this time of peace in some future place. Micah 4, this is, by the way, your reading assignment for this week, you read this section out of Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord, then go read what Micah 4, chapter 4 says. Micah chapter 4. And compare the two and see what you come up with. Also carries many of the same words as Isaiah does here. Both prophets overlapped during this time period. The mountain of the Lord being raised up signifies that God's eternal place of dwelling, symbolized here as the mountain of the Lord, shall be established 
have the, as the center of true worship for the God. In verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The house of Jacob signifies the church of God. The reference to the light of the Lord represents the gifts from God, God's blessings, his presence, and revelation. The Lord is light in blessing and in judgment. John speaks of the light. John 1.4. John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then later again, John 8.12. John 8, 12. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this ends the section on the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah now shifts over to the day of the Lord. Verses 6 and 7 verses 6 and 7. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike their hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots background on, on verses 6 and 7. The people of Judea had followed after the idol worship of the kingdoms to the east and of the Philistines to the west. These kingdoms practiced divination. These kingdoms also appeared to display great wealth, and it made the Hebrew people envious. As the kingdom was threatened by outsiders, Judah would attempt to make alliances with others. When threatened by Assyria, they went to Egypt. When Egypt then threatened them, they tried to align with Babylon. And then when Babylon rose up, they tried to move closer to Egypt once again. And ultimately, they fell to Babylon. Modern equivalents exist in our own world. These are the between countries. Imagine Korea for a moment. You have China. Japan, China, Japan, China, Japan. In Europe, you could imagine Poland. You have Germany and Russia back and forth across Poland for centuries. It's been this way for the Polish people. Judah was one of these between countries. And because of their unfaithfulness, God used them as an example. And this is never a good thing when God uses you as an example, not to follow. Verses 8 and 9. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Isaiah points out the great error of their ways, that the very idols they are worshiping were made by their own hands. The people are corrupting themselves by their very own worship. 
verses 10 and 11. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The wicked and the unjust, the unbelievers, run from God. They run to hide from God. They justify themselves with false arguments, but no one can hide from God. And the proud will be brought low. The people of God will be saved. The Lord shall redeem them, but the unsaved shall suffer judgment. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isaiah prophesies about the day of the Lord, the day when all those who are haughty and filled with themselves will be brought low. This is the day that Jesus comes back. This is why Jesus comes back as a warrior with a tattoo on his thigh riding the horse. And this is the day that we all look forward to because this is the day that all of us are saved to live in the kingdom, the new Jerusalem. Verses 13 and 14. This was a tough verse for me. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills. The cedars of Lebanon are legendary trees, as are the oaks of Bashan. The cedars of Lebanon have almost completely vanished in Lebanon. The forests of these cedars are now mostly in Turkey, southern Turkey. They are great trees and extensively used in large architectural buildings because of their size and strength. Bashan is an area that was in the north and east of ancient Israel. It was over the mountain range, and so they were plains of grass. You might think of it like Thousand Oaks. And these oaks of Bashan lived in that same sort of climate. Mostly that land is now part of Syria. Sometimes it gets called the Transjordan. That area was famous for large and powerful cattle and for the oaks in the arid plains. Like the deep forests and high mountains of the American West, these forests and peaks are symbols of the permanence and splendor of God's natural world. But even these mighty trees in high places are subject to the will of the Lord. And Isaiah is pointing that out here. Verse 15 and 16. Against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, God pronounces judgment against all of the world. Verse 16 references the mighty ships that 
of trade from Tarshish. All their beauty and craftsmanship, the work of skilled hands to create them, and to sail them to the far-off lands in search of trade and commerce. All the handiwork of man is subject to God's will. Sailing ships are particular interest in my family. I don't think I've ever told you guys about this. My grandfather, when he was a very young man, he ran away from home. <clears throat> this was before World War I. And he signed on to one of the last commercial sailing ships. And their job was to sail from Philadelphia to New Brunswick, Labrador, and Nova Scotia and bring lumber back down to New Jersey and Philadelphia. My grandfather did this as a very young man. When World War I broke out, all the sailing ships were brought back to port. And during the war, they rotted there in port. And years later, after the war, nearly all the great sailing ships were gone. Only a few remained, and nearly all in Europe. When I was a very young man, my grandfather came out to help my dad move, move us into the first house my dad owned. I remember this. I was about four years old. And one of the supply houses down in the LA area, a place called Earl's Supply, used to have all these articles that were left over from the wrecking yards. And in there was an old ship's clock. It's the eight-day type, solid brass, weighs about 35 pounds. You have to wind it up. And it chimes bells, and when it gets to eight bells, that it goes one chime for every half hour. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and finally eight, and then it resets to one again. And so eight bells was the end of the watch, and you would change the watch. My grandfather bought a ship's clock that came off of one of the Liberty ships that had been wrecked. I still have that clock. It's in to be repaired right now. It quit running in March. And this is typical. It, it needs to do this about every 20 years or so. And so this is the third time that I can remember where it got taken in to be, yeah, yeah. So uh, when we talk about the ships of Tarshish, I can imagine this. I can imagine what it meant to be one of the, the children left as the parents, the fathers and the grandfathers went away to work on the ships. Even the ships shall be brought low. In verse 17, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In that day. The pride of men will be brought low. All of the amazing and great accomplishments of man 
shall be reduced to utter insignificance. It is the Lord's day, and God shall be exalted on that day. I think about all the incredible things that we as a people have done. That kind of stuff inspires me. That's why I ended up doing the job that I did for all those years. I was absolutely fascinated by the people who would create those things for people to have done all of that. Rovers on Mars, exploration to the outer planets, Cassini to Saturn, New Horizons to Pluto, all of that stuff. To have had little bits and pieces of those. On that day, all of it shall be nothing before God. No one loves the great accomplishments of man more than I do. That the audacity of man to do these things amazes me. And I've met many of those people who helped to make those things happen. But all of it pales to insignificance before the greatness of our God. Verses 18 and 19. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. God shall utterly wipe away the idols from the face of the earth. Those who are terrified of God shall try to hide. There is no hiding from God on that day. The day of the Lord brings judgment on the godless. Blessing and salvation will come for those who are counted as God's people. Verses 20 and 21. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. That terrible last day will force mankind to cast their idols away. All the gold and silver idols shall be cast aside. And the godless will flee to the hills and the caves to hide from God. But there is no hiding from the greatness of God's might. Not on that day. And verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Isaiah is commanding us to trust God here. God is the one who gives us breath. Man is of no account. It is we who depend on God. This is the end of chapter 2. So we have the majestic mountain of the Lord, and the mountain and the temple on it shall be exalted before the whole world. 
All the nations shall come before the dwelling place of God, and God will save his people. Redemption is bought and paid for to those who are in the throng flowing to the mountain of the Lord. And those who are the unbelievers, the godless, those who flee from God, hiding in the caves and in the dirt, there's a terrible judgment that awaits them. This is the lesson for us. Once we were one of those who walked away from God. And it was Jesus who was sent to call us back. We have our rebellion against God, our sin, our unfaithfulness. We are unworthy of any kindness from God, but God, full of loving kindness, sends Jesus to cover our sins, to make us pure, as the expression says, white as snow. It is God who saves us. It is Jesus who is our Redeemer. And Jesus pays the penalty which belongs solely to all of us. And Jesus takes it all upon himself and himself alone. And we get to spend eternity with God the Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit singing praise and honor and glory before them. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Isaiah is telling us about the Christian life. Isaiah wants us to change the way we handle difficulties in the world. He wants us to become more like Jesus, to become more Christ-like by thinking about these things. And by doing this, we emulate Christ. God loves us, yet we still slip and fail. God knows we are not there yet. And again and again, we need to fall on our knees before God, to rely on God, to rely on God's mercy and his love, the love which is beyond our comprehension or understanding. God has chosen us to be his people. Jesus has purchased our redemption. If you've not believed in Jesus yet and you want this free gift of God, all you have to do is accept it. You accept Jesus as your Savior. Do not wait. Pray to Jesus and ask him to come into your heart right now. God's greatness will be there for all of us to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all witness his greatness and his splendor and his majesty on that day. Think of that shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, with no need of a temple because God dwells there. Indeed, we wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Isaiah told us in chapter 41, verse 10, we read, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, you are amazing and all-powerful. And you have kept your promises to us. 
though we have been unfaithful over and over, and you continue to hold us in your hand, Heavenly Father, let us keep your words of your prophet Isaiah in our hearts. Give us the lessons we must learn. Guide the paths of our feet to fulfill your will. Lord, we are so weak, and you are so great. Your plan of redemption is so perfect in your Son who died in our place to redeem us. Lord, it is all so amazing. We love you, God. You are so incredible. We bless you and honor you, Lord. Amen.